Africa rise and shine Africa zosa Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories... AU Heads of State Summit ends in Addis Ababa and South Africa's Defence Minister arrives in South Sudan. In economics news, South Africa prepares to host BRICS Leader Summit. And in sports news, Usain Bolt trains with South African soccer club Sundowns. But first up, the news with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The United States has announced that it's lifting its ban on refugees from 11 high-risk countries. However, it also says those seeking to enter the U.S. would come under much tougher scrutiny than in the past. Applicants from 11 countries, unnamed but understood to include 10 Muslim-majority nations plus North Korea, will face tougher risk-based assessments to be accepted. The 11 countries hit with a ban in October in Trump's administration's revised refugee policy have not been identified officially. But refugee groups say they comprise Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Mali, North Korea, Somali, South Sudan, Sudan, uh, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria and Yemen. U.S. President Donald Trump has pursued a much tougher stance on immigrants and refugees from all countries since becoming president a year ago. The African Union summit in Ethiopia has ended with the heads of state vowing to work towards the continent's self-dependence and better operation of the union. Koleta Wanyonyi reports from Addis Ababa. The AU summit has deliberated on peace and security issues with the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan and Libya topping the agenda. President Zuma says South Africa will continue to play a key role to assist these countries to have lasting peace. The summit also discussed a report on African Union reforms presented by Rwanda President Paul Kagame. President Zuma says there were issues that countries did not agree to in the report, but he is certain that with time there will be one voice on the reforms. South Africa's Gauteng Provincial Premier David Makura and his finance head Barbara Creasy are both expected to testify when the Essetimeni arbitration hearings resume in Johannesburg. The other two remaining witnesses also expected to give evidence before proceedings conclude are National Health Minister Arun Mozwaledi and current Gauteng Health Head Gwen Ramokhopa. Mozwaledi and Ramokhopa are said to appear at the hearings on Wednesday. 144 mentally ill patients died following the bungled relocations from Life Essetimeni Psychiatric facilities to ill-equipped NGOs across the province. The hearings seek to help provide family members with closure and redress, with Sunny Makubele reports. The Premier's office has admitted that it knew about the termination of the contract with Life SED Mani, but it did not know that patients were moved to NGOs and that the decision was not made in consultation with the Provincial Executive Council. However, questions are abound as to what exactly did Premier David Makuran know or did not know about the project. Thus, the question is expected to address today. Meanwhile, Finance MEC Barbara Creasy has been called to provide details of budget allocations to the Mental Health Unit. Chris's evidence is expected to confirm or disprove the version of senior departmental officials who said the decision to sever ties with Life SED Mani was necessitated by budgetary constraints. A Ugandan tabloid red paper has made its much-anticipated return to newsstands after two, a two-month shutdown. The shutdown was prompted by a story that government was plotting to topple President Paul Kagame of neighboring Rwanda. Some vendors in the center of the capital, Kampala, said the red paper sold out in minutes. 
The newspaper, which specializes in sensational gossip and political scoops, was closed in November last year. Eight of its editors and directors were charged with treason and defaming President Yoweri Museveni, his brother, and the security minister. However, last week, Museveni pardoned them, clearing the way for the paper's return to the streets. And finally, the CIA director Mike Pompeo says there's been no significant decline in Russian subversion efforts in Europe and the United States since Moscow allegedly meddled in the 2016 U.S. elections. He told the BBC he expected Russia to try to intervene in the U.S. midterm elections in November. Speaking at CIA headquarters in Virginia, Pompeo said the organization was taking steps to deter such attempts. I haven't seen significant decrease in their activity. Uh, I have every expectation that they will continue to try and do that, but I'm confident that America will be able to have a free and fair election that will push back in a way that is sufficiently robust that the impact they have on our election won't be great. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amika na Unai. The 30th summit of the African Union's head of state and government has concluded in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. African Union chairperson and president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, has held a two days long summit of leaders held under the theme Winning the Fight Against Corruption, a Sustainable Path to Africa's Transformation as Successful. Channel Africa's Ntlanta Matlangu has more from Addis Ababa. The 30th Ordinary Session of the Assembly of Heads of State and Government brought together heads of state and government from AU member states, officials from the AU, representatives from partner organizations and other invited guests. The topic on corruption took center stage in deliberations by the leaders. The AU estimates that 25% of the GDP of African countries is lost to corruption every year. 5% of the resources are lost through illicit financial flows, with 65% of outflows drawn from commercial activity by multinationals and 30% from criminal activities. In his closing address, African Union Chairperson and President of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, called for closer collaboration with Africa's private sector. As we go forward, I would encourage closer collaboration with Africa's private sector on the union's key initiatives. The business community is always eager to get involved and more importantly, they are critical partners in creating opportunities and building the prosperity our continent needs. Besides corruption, issues of conflict resolution across Africa were also discussed. Among them, the situation in South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia and Libya. Speaking at the sidelines of the second day of the session, African Union Commissioner for Peace and Security, Smel Shegi, said they are happy with the developments in the DRC. The uh, Great Lakes region is mainly the situation in the DRC and we reaffirmed our commitment to support fully the uh, electoral process in the RC, which is shall to be organized on 23rd of December this year. We are happy that uh, some developments, positive developments are happening in terms of uh, completing the enrollment process. I think uh, by uh, February uh, this process will be over. Now we are addressing other issues in terms of uh, supporting uh, the electoral commission, both materially and financially, and mainly in terms of transport, because, as you know, DRC is a very big country. The leaders have chosen Egypt to lead the next session of the African Union in 2019. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantamasangu in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. United Nations Humanitarian and Development Chiefs Mark Lokok and 
Achim Steiner, uh, currently visiting Ethiopia, where they are highlighting the immense challenge of persistent food insecurity and the new approach to addressing it. Despite making remarkable strides in development and fighting food insecurity over the past three decades, Ethiopia's susceptibility to drought has resulted in recurring food insecurity. In recent months, hundreds of thousands of people on the border between the Somali and Oromo regions have been displaced, requiring additional humanitarian response. For more on this issue, the UN resident and humanitarian coordinator Ahuna Ezekonwa Onochi. Ethiopia and several other countries, both here in the Horn, but also in southern Africa, have in the last years faced massive climate-related shocks. Uh, in 2015, for instance, 2015-2016, we held the, the El Nino event. Then that was followed by 2017 Horn of Africa drought. And this year we're hearing that, you know, the La Nina might also hit the region. In Ethiopia, that left millions of people. Uh, in the case of El Nino, it was 10.2 million people who were affected and needed relief assistance. The following year, it was 8.5 million. And this year... 2018, we're expecting uh, similar numbers. So we are experiencing more frequent and more severe drought events that are leaving huge humanitarian bills. And these are predictable. We have early warning. And the visit of uh, the two undersecretaries general is significant in that one represents the development system and the other the humanitarian system. And the idea is that these two should work more closely together so that their activities, the activities on the development side can help reduce need on the humanitarian side and the humanitarian program in such a way that they build a foundation for development. So it really is calling for a new way of working where we are investing, co-investing in ways that help reduce human suffering. Now, the high-level AU summit underway in Addis. Will the undersecretary-generals of the UN be attending this event? Actually, their main focus was uh, visiting Ethiopia and speaking with partners in the government on the new way of working. But in the margins, of course, they were invited to attend the official opening of the AU and a few side events, uh, including one on on climate uh, resilience. So that was the purpose. But Because we're dealing with issues that relate not only to Ethiopia, but also to Africa in general, of course, there was a regional application uh, to their visit, which is also positioning for African countries to learn from each other's experiences and then picking up what the high points are for the region that they can continue to advocate for at the global level. So we were looking at this new way of working both from a national and a regional perspective, but also looking at global events that have implications mm. for what happens at least to a, uh, at the regional and at the national level. Mm. Lastly, how much does Ethiopia need this year to respond to the humanitarian needs? The appeal for Ethiopia is still being elaborated, but the government has already issued an alert which is suggesting that five to seven million people this year are expected to be affected by the ongoing drought events and would need about $895 million to address their food and non-food needs. But this will be, you know, the actual figures will be finalized in the next couple of weeks. That's Ahuna Ezeokonwa Onochi, UN resident and humanitarian coordinator on the line from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, speaking to Jane Rabotata. Channel Africa. Kulitra enjoy Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalimera, reporting for Channel Africa in Higali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. South Africa's Minister of Defense and Military Veterans Nasivua Mapisang Makula has arrived in South Sudan's capital, Juba. Diplomats in Juba are optimistic that Ngakula's 
crucial visit will pave the way for South Africa and South Sudan to sign a memorandum of understanding on cooperation in the field of defense. James Shimangula has just spoken to South Sudan's military spokesperson, Brigadier General Lul Ruai Koang, about the seven-year cordial ties between South Africa and South Sudan, Africa's newest nation. South Sudan and South Africa have been enjoying very cordial relationship dating back to during the war of liberation when uh, the SPLM-led war was being fought for independence and um, after we are saying our independence, our relationship continued uh, and it's getting better and better every day. Brigadier, can you tell us what is new that uh, the South African top official going to speak with uh, Lieutenant General Kuol Manyangju? What is new that will be added to the relationship we have had with the South African people? What would you kindly want in South Sudan from South Africa? A lot of, uh, a lot of things. Uh, first and foremost, um, how did they transform? How did the South Africa transform from uh, the real immigration movement to where it is now? So that then we like to share that experience with the government of South Africa and the South African military, how they could uh, strengthen our military capacity. We have a lot uh, to learn and to learn from the South African military. Would you want South Africa to train your forces, which, as you said at the outset, are coming from fighting? And then uh, 2011, there was uh, independence. I would like to reserve that um, uh, answer since we are going to have the military cooperation in time. That all the little details are going to be discussed. How do you, Brigadier, rate South Africa among other African countries that are powerful on the continent militarily? Of course, there's no question that uh, South Africa is a powerhouse. The advanced military power on the continent and we are privileged and honored uh, to have the South African Minister of Defense coming to the Republic of South Sudan with the intention of signing a military cooperation agreement. A supplementary one. After signing the document, what next? Next will be dictated by the contents of the agreement. Simultaneous attacks by suspected armed separatists have been taking place in two English-speaking regions of Cameroon, with casualties among the military, the population and the separatists. Several villages have been burned and thousands of people have fled. Mugi Kinzaga reports from the northwestern town of Kumbo, where the latest casualties have been reported. 30 villagers, a majority of them children, have sought refuge at a building owned by the Roman Catholic Church in Tadu, a village near the English-speaking northwestern town of Kumbo. Three senior women struggle to take care of them. Caroline Gong, 24, who is nursing her newborn, says she ran to the church building since she could not escape because of the poor health of her three-month-old baby. She says the Cameroon military attacked her village and started shooting indiscriminately. Just of a sudden, we saw the military arresting people, shooting others, and others were wounded. They caught some people, and others were taken to the gendarme, and some escaped to bushes. Sebati, how can they come and just be arresting people when they have not said what the problem is? People do not know a reason behind that arresting and shooting. Last Wednesday, citizens of Kumbo awoke to find leaflets reportedly from a group calling itself a resistance army that supports the total independence of the English-speaking regions from the French-speaking regions of Cameroon. The leaflets called for the population to assist in driving out or eliminating the military deployed by Cameroon President Paul Biya to fight separatists. As a result of the threats, the military presence in Kumbo was reinforced and the troops seized homes and arrested people suspected of belonging to the resistance group. The government says a soldier with the Cameroonian Armed Forces was killed in Tadu and another was wounded in an attack by armed separatists last Wednesday. Prudence Lenyui, who works with the Catholic Church's humanitarian outreach program in Tadu, says the military countered the attack 
and a majority, more than 80% of the nearly 1,000 people in Tadu and surrounding villages fled. The military invaded the whole area and in the course of it, an old woman lost her life. And this has caused the population to escape. They are afraid of torture, arrest and all that. It's a situation that we as uh, inhabitants really are so worried about. And the problem is we don't know for how long this will continue. Similar attacks also were reported simultaneously in several other villages in the English-speaking northwest and southwest regions. Several villages were also burned. Isa Chiruma, Cameroon's government spokesperson, said the villagers claims that government soldiers were responsible for the torched villages were unfounded. He accused armed separatists. The asylums are now systematically making use of weapons of war. We are in the presence of full-fledged terrorists who obviously want to take the population hostage. Therefore, all the measures already taken will be strengthened and will apply until order permanently reign in these two regions. We are in the presence of a full-fledged terrorist perpetrated by the armed wing of the secessionist movement. The secessionists have not only publicly announced that they are going to commit such acts, they have always claimed responsibility. The unrest in Cameroon began in November 2016 when English-speaking teachers and lawyers in the northwest and southwest regions, frustrated by having to use the French language, took to the streets, calling for reforms and greater autonomy. It degenerated with separatists calling for independence. Last October, the secessionist groups declared the independence of Ambazonia, saying that Ayuk Tabe Julius, who was in exile in Nigeria, was their president. Armed conflicts erupted, prompting a military crackdown. On January 5, Ayuk Tabe and eight other leaders who had declared independence were arrested in Nigeria and have not been seen since. The separatists announced on social media they will continue fighting until the leaders are released and they gain their independence. The UNHCR reports that by January, tens of thousands of English-speaking Cameroonians had crossed into Nigeria and it said their humanitarian needs are increasing. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Kumbu. Northwestern Cameroon. A rocky ride lies ahead for South Africa's governing party in managing the future of President Jacob Zuma. This is according to political analyst Somadota Figeni. Figeni was commenting on the recent mixed messages sent out by members of the ANC Top 6 on the issue. Busi Chimombe reports. This past weekend's comments by two of the ANC's Top 6 officials have added to further confusion as to what the governing party's plan is for President Jacob Zuma. Addressing the ANC Youth League's rally in Pietermaritzburg yesterday, ANC Secretary-General Esma Khashule dismissed reports that the party might ask President Zuma to step down or recall him. Mahashule says no such decision has been taken by the party's National Executive Committee. President Jacob Zuma is the president of the country. So President Jacob Zuma, there is no decision which we have taken as the National Executive Committee. We have not taken such a decision. It's only factional leaders, factional leaders who want to be populists, who are making noise outside. Mahashule's sentiments were echoed by his deputy Jesse Duarte, who has told a weekend newspaper that Zuma will only step down next year. This is an apparent contradiction to ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa, who while speaking to the BBC's Zainib Badawi in Switzerland last week, said President Zuma is feeling anxious about his future as South Africa's head of state. Zuma's term of office isn't scheduled to end until next year's general elections, but there have been repeated calls for Ramaphosa to replace him immediately. 
In the course of this, we're also going to discuss the transition. How long is it going How to last? How is he feeling? Is he under pressure? Is he feeling very anxious? He must be with all this stuff swirling around him. Well, obviously. I mean, uh, any normal human being would be anxious, would be concerned about all this. So he is naturally feeling uh, anxious and he wants matters to be handled in a way that, uh, you know, they will be handled carefully. Political analyst Somadode Figeni says the country is beginning to see just how divided the recently elected ANC top six really is. Once they start casting aspersions and saying some of the people are loved by the media, some of the people are speaking outside, it may be a veiled signal to some of the leaders, and that cannot be good for the ANC, especially if these contradictions emanate from a very sensitive position of the Secretary General, who may seem to be contradicting the message from the President of the party. Vigeni says that recent moves to hold people accountable for alleged corruption may render any transition between Lutuli House and the Union buildings a rocky one. It is quite clear now that this transition will not be smooth and it is quite clear that uh, the group that is supporting President Zuma might be mobilizing, especially when they see that the State of Capture Commission as well as other legal uh, you know, challenges may be targeting them. With President Zuma scheduled to chair the cabinet later this week, the question of how long he will continue to run the country and with whose support remains uppermost in many people's minds. That report by Busi Chimombe. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetua. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rising. No sole elevate. We ya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanj. Africa, Ayanyomi, Kilon Shele. Africa, Ndinkim, King Kunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, Zimbabwe, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. The African Perspective. This is DJ Cleo with G-Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. Bringing you the African Perspective. South Africa is gearing up to host the 10th BRICS Leaders Summit later this year, a gathering which will bring together leaders of Brazil, India, China, Russia and South Africa will take place in Santa, north of Johannesburg in July. BRICS is a term coined by economists working for the U.S. investment bank Goldman Sachs in 2001, and the five-member economic grouping has evolved into one of the most influential players in world affairs. BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa accounts for about 40% of the world's population and an estimated 25% of its GDP. Significantly, China, the largest BRICS member by population and GDP, has foreign reserves approaching 28 trillion rand. For instance, Brazil has the largest economy in Latin America and is a large contributor of energy, whereas India is a global leader in manufacturing. South Africa is the least developed country amongst the BRICS economic grouping. The decline in business and consumer confidence continues to hamper the country's economic growth. Addressing the BRICS stakeholder meeting in Pretoria, the Deputy Director General at the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, Professor Anil Suklal, says South Africa will benefit immensely from hosting the 10th BRICS summit. So South Africa has this opportunity to showcase not only amongst our BRICS partners but to the global community the positive cooperation that we enjoy within BRICS and its impact not only amongst BRICS countries but its impact globally addressing the key challenges we face as countries of the South in terms of our developmental challenges, in terms of growing our economy, in terms of addressing issues of poverty and unemployment and how we can cooperate together as the BRICS family so that we generate mutual benefit for all of us and we have a win-win cooperation for all of us. 
Meanwhile, the BRICS member states have strongly criticized the move by the U.S. government to impose high import tariffs. These protectionist measures can only hurt the global economy. We understand that the positive impacts of globalization has not percolated down to the poorest, and we need to address that. Globalization is not negative, it's not bad for the international community, but we must ensure that the benefits of globalization benefits the poorest of the poor. Institutions and civil society organizations to solicit input on how to maximize South Africa's social economic gains during the July BRICS Leaders Summit. Tsepo Higaneng in Pretoria. Our headlines up next with Jalani Tulo. The Gambian police lifts a ban on political activities provoked by violent clashes between supporters of President Adama Barrow and those of former leader Yaya Jame. South Africa's Gauteng Provincial Premier David Makura and his finance head Barbara Creasy expected to testify when the SEDMENI arbitration hearings resume in Johannesburg. And finally, more photographs of Iranian women removing and holding their white headscarves up on sticks go viral in defiance of the clerical authorities. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. It is 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. New surveillance data on antibiotic resistance from the World Health Organization has revealed high levels of resistance to a number of serious bacterial infections in both high- and low-income countries. The UN Health Agency's first anti First global antimicrobial surveillance system has shown widespread occurrence of antibiotic resistance among 500,000 people with suspected by bacterial infections across 22 countries. To help us unpack this issue, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Mark Sprenger, Director of WHO's Antimicrobial Resistant Secretariat. Dr. Sprenger, thank you so much for joining us. Now, just how serious is antibiotic resistance worldwide? Good morning. Yes, it's, it's quite serious because uh, we are in a situation where several infections, in fact, are untreatable. That means that, you know, if you have a, um, a pneumonia and you go to a hospital, um, that sometimes it's not possible to treat these uh, patients. Now, I must say that in your country, South Africa, the situation is not that bad. I think you are doing quite well. That's good to know, Doc. Uh, can you explain exactly how antibiotics resistance comes about? Yes. Um, first of all, bacteria, they become resistant, and that's a kind of natural phenomenon. But what is important is that we use, in general, too many antibiotics. So there is misuse of over- or overuse of antibiotics, and that is not only in human medicine, but also in, um, in agriculture. And if you use a lot of antibiotics, they will not work in, in the long run. And also, um, if you are in a hospital, you really need to pay attention to infection prevention, to hygienic measures, not only in a hospital, but also in animal settings. And if you don't do that, um, very nasty bugs are able to spread around. And what we know, for example, is that there are some very nasty bugs. Um, and if you have them in your hospital, and in particular in a neonatal intensive care unit, um, it's very hard to get rid of that bacteria. And a lot of these neonates will become infected and, and really can die because of this uh, nasty bacteria. Now, Doc, 
In terms of this, as, as you mentioned, the fact that antibiotics are overused and sometimes un- used unnecessarily, what needs to be done? Does this go back to the doctors who generally prescribe antibiotic um, medication and also prescribing the, um, the duration of how long an antibiotic should be used? Um, some it's five days, some it's seven days. Just take us through that thought process and how they can play a part in ensuring that um, antibiotics are not overused? Yes. um, So we have on one side the doctors, and on the other side we have the patients. And what we know is that often a patient put pressure on the doctor to provide antibiotics. Um, So it's really important that from both sides they are much more reluctant in providing antibiotics. And often, you know, if you have a, 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 a throat infection, uh, it's because of a virus. It's not necessary to get antibiotics. So in general, we should be much more uh, re- reluctant in using antibiotics. By the way, also in agriculture, there is uh, a high consumption of antibiotics. And also there, we should be much more restrictive in the use of antibiotics. Is it a lack of understanding of what antibiotics generally should be used for? And just uh, mention what uh, what antibiotics are most commonly uh, reported, um, you know, in terms of the resistance to bacteria. Which ones are those? Yes, there is in general um, not enough awareness of this, this problem. So in general, we should uh, really restrict the use of antibiotics we should pay much more attention, in particular in healthcare settings, to simple things like to wash your hands if you touch a patient or if you if you are you know a patient yourself. You should be really careful. Um, it's not so easy to say which bacteria because it depends on, let's say, the uh, the situation in in a hospital. There are very bad uh, bugs, uh, like the so-called gram-negative bacteria, very hard to to treat if you have an infection with these. Although, again, the situation in Africa, in South Africa, is, is, let's say, compared to other countries, is not bad. And this is because you are paying a lot of attention to these issues. Uh, I also know that you have a ministerial advisory committee on AMR, um, but another thing is that in South Africa you have very good uh, pharmacists. Um, it's not possible to get antibiotics just, you know, at, at the corner of the street. It's all very well regulated. And, and this contributes to a much more rational use of antibiotics. What are some of the major challenges, uh, for instance, on the rest of the continent or the world with regards to, um, uh, you know, countries facing building good surveillance systems? You've just mentioned that South Africa has a good system. And we all know in, in South Africa you can't get, there's certain schedules of medication that you can't get over the counter. Um, what major challenges, uh, what are some of the major challenges that other countries face with regards to um, building a good surveillance system for detecting drug resistance? Yes, it all starts with a good health system in general because if you don't have good health care and you don't have laboratories, we don't know what's happening. So it starts with having a good laboratory where you can test materials from patients because that's the only way you get to know whether there are resistant bacteria. Um, and then again, you need to have a good, what we call a pharmaceutical chain, uh, in order to regulate all the, uh, the prescriptions. So in several other countries, first of all, they need to have good laboratories. Um, they need to pay much more attention to infection prevention. Um, and also, um, uh, the, a lot of antibiotics are kind of falsified. Um, so the quality of the antibiotics is also important and because if you buy them at the, the corner of the street in, in other countries, we know that the quality is, is very bad and in fact they are not working at all. So you get falsified uh, antibiotics and, and this is a very serious issue. 
So all these things need to be in place, and that's in, in a lot of countries that's not the case, and that's why um, uh, South Africa is doing much better because I know that there is a lot of political attention for antimicrobial resistance. Speaking of political attention, um, in what other ways or in what ways can the world wage a war against antibiotic-resistant bacteria, in your view, Doctor? So one of the things is that the WHO has provided a, a guideline, uh, and in the guideline it's clear that um, you should not use antibiotics uh, just to give to the animals that they grow faster. So we call it uh, use uh, of uh, antibiotics as a growth promoter. Uh, this is one of the things that should be uh, banned, and we know that in several countries they are using a lot of antibiotics as growth promoter. And even for the prevention, if there is no disease, you should not use antibiotics in animal sector. So in other words, uh, people should ask for antibiotic-free meat. Um, now, I don't know whether this is already the case in, uh, in, in your country, but I know in the United States there is a lot of pressure from, from consumers to, uh, to ask for this meat. Um, and in general, to pay much more attention to the rational use of antibiotics. Um, these are things that, um, that should be in place. Um, also to apply good diagnostics that you test patients. If a patient is in a hospital, don't give an antibiotic without testing. First of all, test what kind of bacteria uh, are, um, uh, are causing the disease and then look what kind of antibiotic is working in that particular situation. So all these things uh, can help to, um, to, to win the battle against antimicrobial resistance. Doc, uh, I guess just to just to respond to that, so in some in South Africa we do have um, uh, you know stores or, or, or brands or markets that uh, um, sell none uh, uh, um, you know a product that doesn't have um, antibacter- uh, antibiotic used in their systems, and generally they're called free range, um, which is very expensive, but a lot of people are now going in that route and buying antibiotic-free, um, whether meat or vegetables or so on. So just to speak to um, what you were speaking of with the United States, South Africa is also heading in that same direction. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Mark Springer, Director of the World Health Organization Secretariat for Antimicrobial Resistance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Department of Education in South Africa's Northern Cape Province has introduced the indigenous language NAMA at schools in the province. Speaking at the official launch in Reimfasmak near Uppington, Deputy Minister of Education Enva Surti says the introduction of one of the country's oldest languages in the province school curriculum will be the first step towards making the language part of the national curriculum. The National Department gave its approval to preserve the rich history and heritage of the Nama language. Nolutando Ngakani attended the event and compiled this report. A day of celebration as one of the country's oldest languages, Nama, is being included into the foundation phase curriculum at the Rimfasma Primary School situated on the border of Namibia and the Northern Cape. The Nama language is prominently spoken in the region. Deputy Minister of Education in Vasurti says indigenous languages are fundamental to our identity as South Africans. Language is very fundamental and, and goes to the heart of our cultural diversity and identity. In order to promote social cohesion, one must promote and recognize the diverse languages that are being spoken. The Khoi and the Sun have a particularly important place 
in the history of our country and their languages cannot be forgotten or marginalized and therefore it's important that we celebrate this particularly important aspect. Last year, the Northern Cape and Karas region in Namibia signed a twinning agreement which focuses on culture and language, among others. Northern Cape Premier Sylvia Lucas says South Africa and Namibia share a rich heritage and history which is set to be revived. It is history in the making, and it's one of the many firsts for us as the Northern Cape people. And we really hope that we will preserve this language and this culture, and we will take it even further from here. The Khoisan community is proud that their culture will receive recognition. It will be very beneficial since the curriculum of South Africa and the curriculum of Namibia is not that vague. It's in the link. The introduction of the Nama language will lay the foundation for government to officially recognize the language. There are also talks for indigenous languages to form part of the national curriculum and to get due recognition. I am Nolutanung Makani in Rimfasmark in the Northern Cape. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Thanks, Lulu, and a very good morning. Anglo-American has announced the sale of a new Lago Thermal coal project in South Africa for approximately 71 million US dollars to a new majority black owned and managed company marking its exit from South African domestic coal during the depths of the commodity crash in late uh, 2015 and early 2016 Anglo-American sought to sell a large part of its assets saying it would focus on copper diamonds and platinum South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister, Lynn Brown, and the leaders of various state-owned companies will appear before a parliamentary committee to discuss the progress made in improving governance at the SOCs. Appearing before the committee will be the board chairperson, CEOs and chief financial officers of Transnet, Alex Court, Denel, SA Express and Safcol. Power Utility Eskom will not appear as it is releasing its interim financial results. Later in the afternoon, the committee is expected to resume its inquiry into uh, corporate governance at ESCOM. A planned 800 million US dollar expansion project of a coal fire power plant in Botswana by Japan's Marubeni Corporation and South Korea's Posco Energy has been put on hold due to a disagreement over terms. Marubeni and Posco Energy were due to start work in January last year on a project to add 300 megawatts to the current 600 megawatt Murupule B plant which was built by the China National Electric Corporation at a cost of $970 million. The power station has often broken down. More Rwandans will now be able to access digital financial services, including microloan and bulk money transfer, following the unveiling of a new drive to roll out new tech-based banking facilities by lender BPR. Officials from the lender, which is part of the Atlas Mara Group, say the bank will also upgrade the existing products with new features to ease the banking experience of customers. The bank will introduce agency banking by the end of this quarter, as well as roll out a mobile micro-lending facility, Visa and MasterCard, and MasterPass debit and credit cards. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.92 to the South African rand. It's at 9.42 in Botswana and at 9.69 in Zambia. It's also trading at 70 pence to the British pound and at 80 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,338. Platinum at $9.96 pounds. So the price of Brent crude oil is at $8.69 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoko for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
First up in our sport update, this hour we're kicking off with football news. The road to the South African Football Association SAFA elections on the 24th of March this year is getting interesting every week. This follows the establishment of the National Football Consultative Forum, the NFCF, in Sentin, whose main aim is to give your football fan on the street the voice in these elections. Spokesperson of the NFCF, Taboma Sombuga, has more on their intentions. It is precisely for these reasons that we are here to launch a national football consultative process whose sole mandate and objective is none other than creating a platform, a multiple platform through which all South Africans can freely participate, express their views on both the direction and the the authority that football must take in this country going forward. Now, these representatives gathered here could have taken the usual route that is usually faces elective conference. They could have simply gathered around the table and decided about a few names and said, hold on, okay, we're putting this, we're submitting this. Like we've seen in many other conferences where slates and and delegates and leaders are nominated. So that the upcoming conference of SAFA on the 24th of March is contested. But these leaders have decided it is time for change. We cannot do more of the same and hope to to see the same different results. Masombuga says the NFCF organizers say they consulted broadly on the caliber of leadership that SAFA needs and are throwing up the names to the public to have its input leading to the elections. These names have been suggested and put forward as probable leaders who represent change. Who represent change that's going to ensure that South Africa go back to its glory days of, uh, of being African champions in 1996 and of qualifying to the World Cup in 1998. These football administrators, I'm going to mention now, undoubtedly possess an illustrious career in the various aspects of the football administration. Amongst others, whose name needs no introduction, is Lucas Hade, Ruha Debe, an astonished and accomplished football player in this country of his eight days, and a very disciplined administrator of our time, Muelo Nongkonyana, Tokyo Sihwale, Ace Ngobo, Prashuz Mazibuko, Riali Dwaba, and indeed, Denny Jordan. This is by no means an exhaustive list. As the consultation goes on, we're going to interface with a various number of regions and stakeholders and engage with them on what we call the cardinal points and the cardinal principles that underpin football administration in this country. Sprint legend Usain Bolt trained with the South Africa's premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns at their headquarters in Johannesburg. The eight-time Olympic champion is visiting South Africa as part of an athletic South Africa development. The retired superstar also has a passion for football and he showed glimpses of his footballing skills. Bolt enjoyed his experience training with the PSL log leaders. <laughs> oh, they, they were pretty good. It was a good experience. Uh, I don't know how quick I am on the ball, but... If I kick and run, it's, you know, I can get there, <laughs> so that's a good thing. Uh, but it, it was a good game. It was good. Uh, it was a fun day. We were very welcoming, uh, so I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was just telling the coach that when I go back to Jamaica, I need some training. Uh, I'm very unfit. <laughs> very, very unfit. Legendary Bolt has remembered how he overcame some of the challenges early in his career that propelled him to take athletics seriously. The Jamaican was speaking at the Puma School of Speed event at the Reimsech Athletic Stadium in Rodiport, west of Johannesburg. Bolt is the principal of the school speed of event whose aim is to unearth some of the most promising sprinters around the country. The eight-time Olympic champion had this motivation for up-and-coming athletes. For me, um, my difficult times really came when uh, I started in my professional career. That's when I really started getting a lot of injuries and and setbacks and for me it was it was the people around me really that helped me to 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 get over and to to move past um just doubting myself uh, especially my coach uh glenn mills uh, really helped me to to really overcome a, a lot and for me my word of encouragement is just to, to work hard uh, never give up on 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 your goal because uh, as my motto say anything is possible um, because when I started out, I never knew I would be this great. Um, I just wanted to be a good sprinter. So just work hard and keep your head down and be dedicated. 
And finally, World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, says it had been alerted by an accredited laboratory in Cologne that bottles manufactured by Swiss manufacturer Berlinja could be opened after being frozen. The glass containers known as the Berekit Geneva were touted as the next generation of sample bottles after being released last year in the wake of the Russian doping scandal that dogged the 2014 Winter Olympics. It was not clear if the new Berlinger bottles were due to be used as next winter in the 2014 Sochi Olympic doping scandal detailed in a report by Canadian lawyer Richard McLaren. Investigators discovered that Russian staff involved had developed a method being able to open tamper-proof sample bottles undetected. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. AU Heads of State Summit ends in Addis Ababa and South Africa's Defence Minister arrives in South Sudan. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today for myself, Lulu Gabu. Producers Pumutura Magadza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team... Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rajshine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Send us an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. And taking us to the top of the hour, for all the news on the frequency 7230 kHz, on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Huma Sigela with a song titled Tumamin. I want to be there when the people win the battle against AIDS. I want to lend a hand. I want to be there for the alcoholic. I want to be there for the drug addict. I want